Hello, and welcome to Beach House 34, the show that dives deep into true crime cases, revealing the truths behind crimes that reveal shocking secrets. Stories sure to make you just a little more paranoid, and maybe even lose sleep. Here's your host, Christine Wirth. Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime Podcast. And hello to all of the new subscribers and the rest of the Beach House 34 family. If you enjoy this podcast and you find yourself coming back time and time again, please like and subscribe wherever you choose to listen, whether on your favorite podcast platform or through YouTube. It means a lot and it lets me know that you enjoy what you're hearing. You can also show your support through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash beachhouse34. And there's also a link in the bio at beachhouse34podcast on Instagram. So thank you. Thank you so much. This is part six of Darlie Routier, Did She or Didn't She? All previous episodes are available at beachhouse34 on your favorite podcasting platform or on YouTube, where they've got their own playlist. And this is probably the easiest way if you want to listen in succession. To briefly, and I do mean briefly because this case is very long, recap. Here's what we know so far. In June of 1996, Darlie Routier was asleep on the couch in the downstairs family room of her home. Her two oldest sons, Devin, six, and Damon, five, were also sleeping downstairs, but they were on the floor with their pillows and blankets. Darlie's youngest son, Drake, who was eight months old, was asleep upstairs in his crib within the parents' bedroom. Darren, Darlie's husband, was sleeping in the same room with Drake. Around 2.22 in the morning, Darlie and the boys were attacked. The boys had been stabbed repeatedly and Darlie had cuts to her arm and a slice to her neck that came within two millimeters of her carotid artery, all seemingly by a knife from inside the home. Darlie woke up and saw a man moving away from her. She chased him and he ran out the utility room, which is essentially the laundry room, and into the garage, which was attached to the utility room, where he then disappeared. Now, in the process of getting away, he dropped a knife in the utility room. Darlie picked up the knife and followed the way that the man went, only to discover that he was gone. In all of the chaos, she had not yet realized what had happened to both her and her boys, and when she discovered this, she screamed for her husband, Darren. So around 2.30 in the morning, Darlie called 911 in a panic. And things get a little chaotic from this point on. She's speaking to 911, but around 2.33, so about three minutes after she called, an officer arrives at the home. Now, this officer had not called in to let dispatch know that he was at the scene. Two minutes after that, another officer arrives and the dispatcher is telling Darlie, hey, let the police in. But Darlie's confused because an officer was already standing right there with her. Now, the first officer does not pursue the intruder even after Darlie told him where he had gone. Instead, he waited for a second officer to arrive. In the meantime, 
Darlie, she of course has her throat cut. She's bleeding. She's still on the call with 911, begging them to send an ambulance, telling them that her children are dying and wondering out loud where in the hell the paramedics were. So Darlie, although she didn't say hell, Darlie speaking to the first officer, uh, tells him that the intruder had dropped the knife and that she had picked it up, concerned that she may have gotten her fingerprints on it. Now, dispatch, she's still on the phone, heard this conversation and told Darlie not to touch anything to which Darlie then said that she already had. After it was all said and done, both children ended up passing away and Darlie had been rushed into emergency surgery. So a few days later, Darlie and Darren went to the police department to give their official statements. Even after giving their initial statements, they gave additional statements freely and without concern, walked into the police department, said, sure, we'll answer your questions. One incident that seemed to stand out, uh, not only to jurors, but the public in general, and this is during the time from when the incident occurred, Darlie's in the hospital, she was there for a few days, she gets out and it's coming up on Devon, her oldest child's birthday. This is a scene, I'm sure you've heard of it, called the Silly String Incident. Now, what happened was that Darlie and other family members had gathered at the children's graves for a birthday celebration for Devin, who would have turned seven years old. It shows Darlie at times smiling, chewing gum, and spraying silly string over the card and balloon decorated grave of Devin. Now, overall, it doesn't give a really good look. However, this footage was only a portion of what had happened that day. Uh, prior to this incident, the family had all gathered along with the pastor. They had a prayer service. Emotions were high. Everybody's crying. This footage, however, was never included either on television or in court. And we'll get to this. Now, not long after this incident at the gravesite, police arrested Darlie for the murder of her two children. A few months later, bond hearings were held and some fascinating information came from these hearings. Now, I won't go over everything because it's all very lengthy, but all of the testimony, in case you're interested, was covered in the last few episodes. And these prior episodes, again, only focused on the hearings to hold Darlie without bond. Now, Darlie's trial began on January 6th of 1997. And this is just seven, seven months after she was arrested. To say that this case is interesting and complicated, not to mention very divisive, would be an understatement. Now, Darlie, at the beginning, she had a court-appointed attorney, Douglas Parks, who has extensive experience in capital murder cases, Parks brought in leading forensic experts that showed forensically that the evidence did not point to Darlie's guilt. Parks was told that he had six months to prepare for the trial. So Doug Parks, what he did is he requested a change in venue, believing that Darlie could not get a fair trial in Dallas County. And in July of 1996, he filed a motion to have the trial moved. In September, of 1996, Judge Toll, the same judge who had denied Darlie's bond to be reduced, 
and then granted the request then granted the request for a change of venue but changed the venue to one of the most conservative towns in the state Kerrville uh, it's been said that if you want to guarantee a conviction move it to Kerrville however Darley's mother also named Darley if you recall uh, but instead she goes by Darley Key wanted Darren to locate another attorney rather than a court appointed one and they found one Douglas Mulder now Mulder wouldn't even take the case until he had first visited with Darley so he went ahead and said yes I will take Darley's case and when he took over he had about six to seven weeks to prepare for the trial Mulder then sent in a request for a change of venue asking that it be returned to Dallas County but again Judge Toll he denied the motion so at the beginning of Darley's trial this is where we begin we have a prosecution attorney assistant district attorney Greg Davis at the time who's been with the case since day one and we have Mulder Darley's defense attorney who had limited time to prepare and the icing on the cake was that the case was going to be tried in Kerrville. With all of that, we begin with the actual start of the actual trial. Now, you'll hear first the reading of the indictment. I'm not going to cover the swearing in of the jury and witnesses, but instead move right along into the opening statement of the prosecution and then the opening statement of the defense. And if this particular episode doesn't get too lengthy, I'll add additional uh, trial information. So with that said, let's get started. Be it remembered that on Monday, the 6th day of January 1997 in the Kerr County Courthouse, this case being transferred from Criminal District Court number 3 of Dallas County, Texas, the above-styled cause came on for a trial before the Honorable Mark Toll, judge presiding for the Criminal District Court No. 3 of Dallas County, Texas, with a jury, and the proceedings were held in open court as follows. The court then states, all right, let's go on the record. All right, this is cause A96-253, the Kerr County number formerly, and then they give a different number, the Dallas County number, styled the state of texas versus darlie lynn routier who is present in court with her attorneys let the record reflect that these proceedings are being held outside the presence of the jury and all parties to the trial are present we will now arraign the defendant mr davis do you wish to do that mr greg davis then says yes sir mr douglas Mulder, again the defense attorney says judge would you like to have her stand in as much as this is not before the jury? And the court says, yes, whatever. Mr. Mulder then says, what is your pleasure? And the court says, whatever she wishes to do. If you care to stand up, that will be fine. You may be seated if you wish. That's fine. Mr. Davis, the prosecutor, then says, true bill of indictment in the name and by the authority of the state of Texas, the grand jury of Dallas County, state of Texas, duly organized, at the January term AD 1996 of the 194th Judicial District Court of Dallas County in said court at said term do present that one Darley Lynn Routier is that your true name at which point Darley says yes it is 
Mr. Greg Davis then continues to say, the defendant on or about the 6th day of June, AD 1996 in the County of Dallas and said state did unlawfully then and there intentionally and knowingly cause the death of Damon Christian Routier, an individual here and after called the deceased by stabbing said Damon Christian Routier with a knife and the deceased was at the time of the offense under six years of age against the peace and dignity of the state signed John Vance criminal district attorney of Dallas County, Texas, Ray W. Paul, senior foreman of the grand jury court then says, Mr. Mulder, how does your client plead? The defendant uh, Darley says not guilty. The court then says, all right, thank you, ma'am. All right. We have before the court two motions filed this morning, a motion for continuance and a motion to examine the jurors. The court will take up the motion for continuance first. Who is going to address that? At this point, Mr. Mosty um, on the defense team says, Your Honor, I will address the motion for continuance. All right. Mr. Mosty then says, and let me preface this by saying that we are asking for a one day continuance. During the course of our investigation over the last few weeks, we have determined, for instance, that as late as December 20th of 1996, that additional DNA testing was requested by the state. We presume, since we do not have these results, that the state does not have them. So there is DNA testing that is outstanding, ongoing, that has not been provided to us, and we move for a continuance on that basis, or in the alternative, to exclude that DNA testing, whatever the results may be, precluding the state from introducing those. And the court then says, well, go ahead. Mr. Mosty then continues, the second part of the motion for continuance is that we have that the evidence has been at various places. The district attorney's office, the Rowlett Police Department, Swift's, Dean Screen, various places. And Mr. Douglas and Mr. Harrell went up last week to look at that and they weren't able to look at all the evidence even. Some of it was being put together to be moved down here. So presumably, all of the evidence is here now. I think it came in on the second. So we need one day or part of a day to examine all of the evidence that the state has down here, which we have not had that opportunity to do up to this time. The third item is that as of Friday afternoon, Mr. Mulder received another report from the state. I didn't receive it. It was not sent to me. And Mr. Mulder was actually in transit at the time or getting ready to head to Kerrville and picked up a copy of it and brought it down. So Mr. Mulder got it Friday evening as he was traveling. I got it over the weekend. And this is additional testing done by Swifts. And this is, I'm going to insert something here. When I read this term, this Swifts, it's S-W-I-F-S and it's all capital letters that we just got Friday. So we needed at least a bit of time to evaluate that. So for all of those other things, such as the photographic contact sheets that were to be available, I filed a motion before Christmas that Mr. Davis immediately responded to that said this information will be available. And then when we went up there, it in fact wasn't. And of course, we were all dealing with the holidays, so I don't fault anyone for that. It's just couldn't. It just hasn't been done. 
and we have not seen all of the photographic contact sheets. By contact sheets, what I mean is the log of what photograph goes to what, and then the court says, I'm familiar with that. Mr. Mosty then continues, location or what time frame. In connection with this, we have also filed a motion to examine the witness, which also in terms of a one-day continuance, we think makes sense in that we think that the court ought to briefly and within some agreed upon question areas, inquire of the jury just to make sure that nothing has happened to them, either through the media or in their personal life, that would cause them to be anything other than fair and impartial. So we're not talking about a real delay here and that the court and some of the attorneys could be examining the jurors while other of the attorneys were looking at the evidence. And so, and quite frankly, I think that in the long run, this will speed up the trial process. If we're having to one by one, look at documents or boards or whatever they may be. If we have done that in advance, then we will be in a far better position to understand what the state is offering and to either know that we have an, obje an objection or not. And then in the long run, the trial will really run smoother if we have this day. The court then says, okay, well, have you given the defense everything that they're entitled to, Mr. Davis? Mr. Greg Davis, again, the prosecutor says, yes, sir. I, When I contacted Mr. Mosty, when I received his motion on December the 20th, I told him that I was a little bit surprised because all of this stuff has been available since they got hired on October the 21st. Now, I have never received a single phone call. I have never got a single letter, not a single personal contact from anybody here at the defense table asking to see anything. The first thing I get is the motion on December the 20th, can we see photographs? And of course, they have been available for over two months for them. All of the physical evidence has been out at Rowlett for two months available to them. All of the other evidence at Swift's and Jean Screen has been available. So I'm not quite sure why they waited until the late part of December to try to make an attempt to view all this stuff. The court appointed attorneys that you had on this case previously, prior to October the 21st, had already had a chance to go out, in fact, twice to Rowlett and view everything, videotape everything. I've got to assume that that videotape that they made of all the physical evidence was handed over to Mr. Mulder or Mr. Mosty. So I'm a bit bewildered, I guess, about why all of this is occurring in late December. Now, the only DNA testing that's outstanding concerns the t-shirt. It probably consists of no more than 10 to 12 samples that were taken off the t-shirt. That's the only DNA that we have outstanding. I have asked Sherry Wallace to call Jean Screens to talk to Judy Floyd or Robert Giles. I would assume that this morning that I will have those results back from Gene's screen and I will certainly convey those to the defense at that time. I would also notify the court that I know that Mr. Mulder has been out to talk to Charles Lynch of Swift's at least twice. He talked with him the first time for three hours about the case. He talked with him again. I know the defense attorneys talked with Charles Lynch again for over three and a half hours on New Year's Eve. The defense has had DNA experts available to them since October the 21st that have already been hired by the court-appointed attorneys. In talking with them last week, they indicated that they haven't done any testing on any of the samples that they took back in August of 1996. 
So that's where we stand on the case at this point, Your Honor. Court then says, all right, thank you. Uh, Mr. Mosty says, may I respond briefly, Your Honor? Court then says, you may indeed. Well, it's not the photographs we're asking for. It's the contact sheets whereby you can make sense of the photographs. And as we sit here right now, and they were in Mr. Douglas's and Mr. Harrell were in the DA's office the 27th, and those were not available. They were not available to them. I don't know where they were, but they were not available to them, so we haven't seen them. Mr. Davis then says they were. I'm sorry. Mr. Mosty says, the second thing is, is that as Mr. Davis suggests, if we get the gene screen information today, then we can look at it today and we would be in a position to be prepared. If it comes in today, that would be great. And then we'll know. The third item he addressed, well, I think I have covered the main two. The one is the contact sheet. Well, the third item is that even after we talked to Lynch, and this was on the 31st, even after we talked to Mr. Lynch, Two days later, on January 2nd, we get a new report dated January 2nd from Mr. Lynch's organization. So that's the kind of thing that's happening. We go to talk to somebody, and then after that happens, then we get a new test. Mr. Greg Davis, again, the prosecutor, says, well, the context sheets, again, I indicated to Mr. Mosty that he could check with Swift's or he could check with the Rowlett Police Department. They would be in possession of those items. I wouldn't. So as to reasons why they didn't see those at those departments, I don't know. The court then says, all right, thank you. The court denies the motion for continuance and denies the motion to examine the jurors. All right. Mr. Mulder then speaks up and says, judge, just one thing. Will you instruct them to give us the contact sheets of those photographs? The court then says, whatever you're entitled to, you will get. Mr. Mulder then says, well, I understand that, Judge, but that doesn't do me any good. We want the contact sheets. The court then says, well, you are instructed to give. Do you have the contact sheets? If you have the contact sheets, let Mr. Mulder or one of the defense attorneys have them. Mr. Greg Davis says, yes, sir. Mr. Mulder says, when can we have them? The court says, well, I imagine as soon as they can get them for you, it's 9.07 now. I imagine sometime this morning you will get them. Mr. Mulder then says, by noon. The court says, well, I don't know, but I think we can handle that. Do you have the contact sheets? Mr. Greg Davis then says, I don't know. I will have to check. I don't know if they are down here or not. I know that Rowlett brought extra copies of all of their photographs down here. The court then says, well, we can work that out. Mr. Mulder then says, we have got the photographs. We aren't concerned with the photographs. We're concerned with the contact sheets. And there's a big difference. That's what we've been trying. We understand what the photographs are. We have had the photographs forever. We want the contact sheets. The court then says, well, as soon as you get the contact sheets, give them to the defense. Mr. Greg Davison said, yes, sir, I will do that. Mr. Mulder then says, well, can't we have a deadline on that judge as to when we can get them? The court then says, well, why don't we find out when they can get them first? And then I will rule on that part of it again. Mr. Davis, again, the prosecutor says, all right, I will have Miss Wallace go back right now and talk with them. Also, Miss Wallace has now talked with Jean Screen. All of the samples that were taken from the T-shirt Dr. Giles has indicated to her are that of the defendant. And those are the samples that are taken from the large bloody area here on the front of the t-shirt. 
And there were some additional, I believe three samples off the right shoulder. Those were all the defendants. The court then says, all right, thank you. Is the jury here? All of them are here. At this point, the deputy uh, sheriff in the room says, we lack one. The court then says, well, let's check and see if that one has come in yet. And the deputy sheriff says, all right. Another gentleman, Mr. John Hagler says, excuse me, your honor, while we're waiting for the jury, could I make a statement to the court? Oh, sure. And John Hagler is part of the defense team. And he goes on to say, judge, I anticipate that they will be making an opening statement at this point in time. I understand that the statement itself isn't evidence, but the problem we have, of course, is we don't know what they're going to say. And we're going to notify the court now that we're going to object to some of their expert testimony and specifically the validity of some of their expert testimony, the tests, the foundation for the validity of the qualifications and what have you. We would object to them going into the specific nature of their expert testimony because of the prejudicial effect before this court has had an opportunity to review that testimony and rule on it. And secondly, as far as in terms of the motion in Lamine, not sure if that's how you say that, we will object at this time. We have already made some reference to it in the pretrial motions, but in this case, there are some matters regarding sexually oriented materials and what have you, and we're going to object to those. I won't go into specific details at this time, but specifically materials and specific matters regarding the defendant's background and what have you. We're going to object to any reference to those. During the trial, we will want a hearing on it before the state is going to offer any of this testimony. But the reason I mentioned it at this point in time, Your Honor, is the fact that once this comes out in front of the jury, it is just going to be very difficult for the court to instruct the jury to disregard. So I would ask that the court instruct the state, one, not to go into any type of sexually oriented materials or background matters regarding or collateral matters regarding the defendant. And secondly, I know they can make an opening statement and give an overview as to their testimony, but we're going to object to any specific references or statements during their opening statement regarding the nature of this expert ex testimony and its contents. And the court then says, well, the court will instruct both sides when they make their opening statements. If both sides intend on making opening statements, to make the opening statements without any testimony be given. Thank you. We're still waiting for a juror, so everybody relax. So after, for a little time, they take a short recess and then um, everything resumes. And Mr. Greg Davis, the prosecutor says, judge, if we can make a statement on the record. And the court then says, sure. Mr. Davis then said, I spoke with the Rowlett Police Department and determined that they have no contact sheets. They don't use contact sheets. We have also talked to Swifts, the same thing. They don't use contact sheets. They simply go from the slides directly to photographs. And so we have none. The court then says, all right, there are no contact sheets available. Mr. Mulder, again, the defense attorney, defense attorney speaks up and says, well, that clears it up, but of course it could have been cleared up a long time ago. Apparently they didn't know what contact sheets were. Mr. Davis then says, well, this could have been cleared up a long time ago if you had asked us. Mr. Mulder then says, but we did ask for them. They said they had them. In fact, he said 10 minutes ago they had them. 
The court then says, all right, gentlemen, let's cease the bickering. There are no contact sheets. There will be none given. Thank you. Mr. Mulder then says, judge, could we find out if they have a photographic log in lieu of the contact sheets? Mr. Greg Davis then says, we'll find that out. And the court then says, we will find that out. Mr. Mulder then says, what we would like, and let me just tell you where I'm going on this. You know, when you look at the photographs, you will see the various items of evidence have moved in the photographs. And you can't tell without the contact sheets or without a photographic log as to when the photographs were made, but the evidence moves. Mr. Davis says, well, that's not true because the photographs have the deed stamp on them. Mr. Mulder says, well, some do and some don't. Mr. Greg Davis says, when they show June 6th and when they show June 8th. Mr. Mosty, again, part of the defense team says, so we can be clear. What we're looking for is any piece of paper, handwritten, called a log, a contact sheet, any scrap of tangible personal property that can somehow identify what photographs are taken when. Mr. Greg Davis says, okay, we're going back right now to find that out. I have never seen one, but we are going to double check again. And the court then says, all right, I think that both sides have had adequate time to prepare for this case and whatever the state has that the defense is entitled to, the state is ordered to give it to them. We will now await the arrival of the final juror. At this point, they await this final juror. Uh, once this final juror takes their seat, uh, the court then says, all right, you may make your opening statement. And this is the prosecution's opening statement. Mr. Greg Davis, again, the prosecutor says, read the indictment first. And the court says, excuse me, thank you very much. Let's present the indictment first. Thank you. Mr. Greg Davis then says, yes, sir. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Again, my name is Greg Davis. And along with Mr. Shook and Ms. Wallace, I represent the state of Texas in this case. I am now going to read to you the true bill of indictment, which has been returned by the Dallas County Grand Jury in this case. It reads as follows. Quote, true bill of indictment. In the name and by the authority of the state of Texas, the grand jury of Dallas County, state of Texas, duly organized at the January term AD 1996 of the 194th Judicial District Court, Dallas County, in said court at said term, do present that one Darley Lynn Routier, defendant, on or about the 6th day of June, AD 1996, in the county of Dallas and said state, did unlawfully then and there intentionally and knowingly caused the death of Damon Christian Routier, an individual here and after called deceased by stabbing the said Damon Christian Routier with a knife. And the deceased was at the time of offense under six years of age, unquote. It concludes, quote, against the peace and dignity of the state, unquote. It is signed by John Vance, criminal district attorney of Dallas County, Texas. And it's also signed by Ray W. Paul Sr., who is the foreman of the grand jury. The court then says to the indictment, Mr. Mulder, how does your client plead? Mr. Mulder then said, yes, sir, your honor. And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the defendant pleads not guilty. The court then says, all right, the state may make your opening statement. 
Mr. Greg Davis then says, thank you. May it please the court. Ladies and gentlemen, on June the 6th of 1996, the evidence will show that five-year-old Damon Christian Routier and his six-year-old brother Devin were stabbed and murdered in their own home in Rolette, Texas, and Rolette being a small suburb in eastern Dallas County. Now, the evidence will show, in this case, how these two children were murdered, who murdered them, and the reasons why they were murdered. And in the process, ladies and gentlemen, the evidence in this case will show you that this woman here, Darlie Lynn Routier, and no other person, is the individual who stabbed and murdered her own children as they lay sleeping in their own home on June the 6th, 1996. The evidence will show that the real Darlie Routier is in fact a self-centered woman, a materialistic woman, and a woman cold enough, in fact, to murder her own two children. Now, the evidence in this case also will show you that the, that the defendant's husband is named Darren, Darren Routier. Now, Darren owned and operated a small electronics business in Rolette, Texas, and he did very well. He was a hard worker. In 1993, the Routier family moved into a new two-story home in Rowlett in a nice neighborhood. Their address was 5801 Eagle Drive. It was a corner lot. The evidence will show that when they moved into that home, they started to buy the kinds of things that would show their success. A lighted fountain, satellite dishes, jewelry, fancy clothes, leather furniture, and a Jaguar automobile. And 1994 was another good year. And 1995 was even better. But again, instead of reinvesting the money from that business back into that business, the evidence will show that the defendant and her husband kept on spending those profits on themselves. And this time, in 1995, there were several vacations. There was a $9,000 Redwood Spa for their backyard, and there was a $24,000 cabin cruiser for the lake. Lake Ray Hubbard, which is close to Rowlette. Now in 1996, as 1996 began, everything still looked good on the surface for this defendant. The evidence will show that beneath the surface, things were starting to change. For you see, in 1996, Darlie Routier had a new baby. The baby was keeping her very busy. Her other two children, Devin and Damon, were also keeping her busy. Secondly, she hadn't been able to lose the weight from her pregnancy. She was having problems there also. And perhaps most importantly, the evidence will show to you that the money train from Darren's business was beginning to peter out. His business was flattening out as 1996 began. When we come to June the 5th of 1996, the evidence is going to show you that those problems began to worsen and that they had worsened over time. By that date, this defendant right over there still had not lost the weight that she had gained during her pregnancy. And that had led her by June the 5th, 1996, to begin taking diet pills in order to try and get back that figure. She was no longer the glamorous blonde center of attention by that date. Also by that date, the baby, his name was Drake. By this time, he was eight months old, Drake. Devin and Damon were again, were taking up more and more of her time. And by this time, she was becoming angry because in fact, her lifestyle that she had grown accustomed to, the vacations, the buying sprees, the nice things, the freedom, those things were starting to go away. And she was beginning to become very angry 
by that time. You will also see that by 1996, by June the 5th, on that date, the Jaguar automobile, it wasn't running. So she had no transportation. That cabin cruiser on the lake by that time, it wasn't running either. And there were problems in Darren's business. The evidence will show again that business was starting to flatten out. By June the 5th, the routiers, the defendant and her husband, had no savings accounts, no retirement accounts. They had very little money in the bank. I mean, the house was still there, the boat was on the lake, but there was very little money in the bank. And we're going to show you that on that date, there was under $2,000 cash available to these people by that date. The evidence is going to show to you that by June, the situation had become bad enough that on June the 1st of 1996, now we're talking only five days before the murder of these two children in their home, that the routiers tried to borrow $5,000 from a bank in Rallet. Because of their credit situation, they were turned down on that loan. That's the situation that we see on June the 5th, 1996. Now, during that evening, the evidence is going to show to you that the two boys, Devin and Damon, were downstairs in the family room. And we'll be referring to it as either the family room or as the routiers, sometimes referred to it as the Roman room. They were in the family room sleeping, watching television. The defendant was down there. At times, her husband was downstairs also. About 1 a.m. that morning, both boys were asleep on the carpet by a couch where the defendant was, close to a big screen television. They had been watching TV that evening. By this time, they were sound asleep. About one o'clock in the morning, the defendant's husband came to her and told her that he was going to go ahead and go upstairs to the master bedroom and go to sleep. Baby Drake was already up there in his bassinet. The defendant at that time at one o'clock in the morning told her husband, I'm not going to go upstairs. I'm going to stay downstairs with the two boys. You see, the defendant was a very light sleeper. And she had complained to her husband that the baby would keep her awake simply by churning in his crib. And for that reason, she said, I'll stay down here with the two boys tonight and I will sleep down here. So at one o'clock in the morning, the situation will be that we have Devin, we have Damon, and we have only one other person downstairs with them. And that person is the defendant right over there, Darlie Lynn Routier. Now, sometime between 1 a.m. and 2.30 a.m. on the morning of June the 6th, 1996, both Devin and Damon were stabbed to death. The evidence will show to you that Devin Routier, the six-year-old, was stabbed twice in the chest. The first stab wound to the upper chest penetrated his pulmonary artery, and it went right into his lung. The second stab wound that you will hear about is lower in the chest, and that entered into his liver. And the evidence will show to you that six-year-old Devin died face up on the carpet with his eyes open. Supposedly, as his mother, the defendant, was sleeping on a couch in that very same room where he died. Now, the evidence will show you that five-year-old Damon was also stabbed. That child was stabbed four times in the back. Some of those wounds penetrated through his lungs, others through his liver, and he died as a result of those stab wounds. The evidence will show you that he was stabbed at least one time in the back, again, as his mother supposedly was sleeping on a couch nearby where he was attacked. But the evidence will show to you that he didn't die immediately. 
Damon somehow struggled across the floor of that family room towards the hallway and towards the kitchen before collapsing on the floor. And when the first police officers got there to that scene that morning, and when the paramedics got there, they found him face down gasping for breath with his eyes open. But the evidence will show to you that Damon Christian Routier died before the paramedics could get him to the hospital that morning. Now, you will hear from the police officers who dealt with the defendant. You will hear from paramedics who dealt with the defendant that morning also. You will hear from doctors who treated her, and you will hear from personnel from Baylor Hospital in Dallas, nurses and other medical personnel over there who dealt with her that morning. And you'll hear them tell you that that morning, immediately after these attacks on her children, this defendant was not in shock. This defendant was awake, she was alert, and she was very coherent. You will hear them tell you how they had conversations with her in which she was able to follow their instructions and able to give a very detailed information to them about herself and about events and about her condition. You will hear from those very same people that this woman over here, Darlie Lynn Routier, that morning while she is at the scene at 5801 Eagle Drive, made absolutely no attempts to help either of her two children, either Devin or Damon. She never asked about their condition, never asked about where they were going, made absolutely no inquiries about her two children at 5801 Eagle Drive. You will also hear from them how this defendant gave differing stories about what had happened out there that night. You will hear the 911 tape. You will hear that at 2.31 a.m., June the 6th, the Rowlett Police Department received a call from the defendant, a 911 call. And you'll hear that tape during this trial, probably today or either, either tomorrow. You'll hear that tape. And on that tape, you will hear the defendant's voice. You will hear her scream, sometimes very loudly. You will hear the very first story that she gives to the police about what happened out there that night. You'll hear her say to them that, in fact, that she had seen an intruder while she was sleeping downstairs, that she woke up. She found that her two children had been stabbed, that she had been stabbed, that she saw an intruder. The intruder then started to run from the family room, through the kitchen, to the utility room, and finally to the garage. That he was armed with a knife. You will hear her tell the police that she chased the man. While she's unarmed, that she chased this armed intruder through the house, that he threw a knife down in the utility room, that she picked up that knife. Now, you will also hear on that tape how the focus of Darlie Routier turned very quickly from her two children who were dying there in her presence to herself, to the activities of the police department personnel who were on the scene and to the condition of the crime scene. You'll hear her only five minutes into that tape say, this knife was laying over there and I already picked it up. God, I bet we could have gotten the prints, maybe, maybe. You will hear that being said as her two children are dying and bleeding to death right there in front of her. Now, finally, ladies and gentlemen, in this trial, you will hear about the police investigation, the extensive police investigation, and you will see the physical and the scientific evidence that was conducted and that was preserved and collected out there at that scene. You will see a lot of things. Unfortunately, they're going to be very graphic. 
and I'm just going to apologize in advance for that. There is just no way around it. Some of these things are going to be very difficult for you to look at and to listen to, but the bottom line and the reason why we're going to have to show you these things is because those things show us and they'll show you exactly what happened out there that night. And for that reason, you're going to have to view it and you're going to have to listen to it. Now, among the things that you will see through that evidence will be that both boys, both Devin and Demon, were stabbed with a knife that came from the defendant's own kitchen, a large butcher knife that was kept in her kitchen. You will also see in that evidence that both boys' injuries were deep stab wounds to the trunk area, but they were totally inconsistent with the superficial wound that this defendant received on June the 6th. 1996. That evidence will also show you that neither the defendant nor any intruder ever ran through that kitchen and utility room to the garage after the boys attack as the defendant claimed. That never happened. You will also see that no intruder ever threw a knife down on that utility room floor as he fled that residence as the defendant claimed. And you will also see in that evidence that no intruder ever left out of that garage through a window where a screen had been cut that evening after the boy's attack. That never happened either, as this defendant claimed it happened that night. And finally, the evidence in this case will show you beyond any reasonable doubt that this defendant staged the crime scene before the police got there to make it appear like an intruder had come in and that she had had a struggle with that intruder. You will also see that there is blood on her t-shirt that she was wearing at that time that her son's own son's blood is on her t-shirt and that it was deposited while she was stabbing them to death on June the 6th, 1996. And finally, you will hear that that screen that was cut on that garage window, the place where this intruder supposedly came into the house to attack the boys and supposedly left out of the house as she chased him unarmed. You will see that the screen is made up of two things. It is made up of fiberglass rods that are also connected with a rubber polymer, a black rubbery substance. And you'll hear that a knife was found inside the defendant's residence in her kitchen, still in a butcher block, and that knife was examined. And those two very same substances, both the fiberglass rods found in the window screen and the black rubber material was found on the blade of that knife. At the conclusion of this case, when all of the testimony is in, I'm going to come before you and I'm going to ask you to find this defendant guilty because the evidence we're going to show you through this trial shows beyond any reasonable doubt that she is in fact guilty of the capital murder of five-year-old Damon Christian Routier. Thank you. The court then says, thank you, Mr. Davis. Mr. Mosty, the defense will now make an opening statement. At this point, Mr. Mosty, one of the defense attorneys, gets up and says, may it please the court, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I think that when we talked to all of y'all, that at some point, one of the defense lawyers, Mr. Mulder or myself or one of us, probably said to every one of you that one of the things that we hate about a criminal case is that the state always gets to go first and that we think first impressions are important and that we would like to go first and we would like to tell you our story, but we're not allowed to do that because of the rules. 
the state and the indictment was read to you and you were all told that the indictment is no evidence of guilt. It means nothing. And the presumption of innocence and the burden of proof that the state has to provide beyond a reason, beyond a reasonable doubt that Darley is guilty. And so if we, so we don't get to go first. And I just say that to remind you again of that, as I talk about what evidence is going to show and what Mr. Davis did not tell you about what the evidence is going to show. Always remember that we're going to get our chance. It's not just going to be the first chance. Now, what the state has said is that a person who has witnessed their two children being stabbed to death in their own home and their own knife, their own throat slashed, that the person's account given right then and under the terror of that moment, that that account is by itself and that they will take that by itself and prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Darley is guilty. That's what the state's theory is, is that this person who was traumatized by her children being killed in front of them made statements that prove her own guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And I submit to you when we, when I talk about the evidence here, and when you see the evidence, you will see that that isn't what happened. Darren and Darley Routier are a young couple. It struck me that Mr. Davis talked about them not having a savings account. I hope I never get tried over how much money. At this point, Mr. Greg Davis says, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I'm going to have to object to the personal comments of Mr. Mosty. If we could just stick with what the evidence will show, please. Court then says, sustained, just stay on the evidence, please. Mr. Mosty then says, Darren and Darley are a couple that met in West Texas in Lubbock. And the evidence will show that they eventually settled and they were trying to get ahead. They're in their mid-20s, trying to get ahead and ended up moving to Rowlett, which is just northeast, you would say, in Dallas. And they did find some success and they wanted to get ahead. And Darren started a little business and it gained some success. And they bought a nice house and they had two beautiful children when they moved in that house and later a third. And you will see that house will be brought to you. And you will see a description of that house and you will go upstairs and you will see bedrooms decorated with Mickey Mouse wallpaper with children's stuff, Mickey Mouse bedspreads, another bedroom that is decorated very neatly with the other child's stuff in it. You will see a house that is a family in a fairly upscale, I would call it, neighborhood, a neighborhood unlike you will find one in Kerrville. And you will see this attention to children but you will see that this lady's life focused around her children. She helped her husband at the store some, at the business some, but her life focused around the children. And you will see by all accounts from friends, neighbors, family, that she devoted everything to those children, that that's what she lived around. In fact, as Mr. Davis pointed out, she was a light sleeper, so concerned as a mother about an infant baby that if the baby just moved, she was worried about her baby. And that's the life you'll see. And then the state suggests that in a blink of an eye, this lady changes from a doting mother of three babies to a psychotic killer. And not only a psychotic killer, but a forensic expert, an expert in crime scenes, such that she could stage this whole crime scene. You will see from the evidence, the type of wounds that Darley Routier had. You will see a stab wound, defensive in nature, to her right shoulder. 
And the state will suggest to you that that's self-inflicted or that it's staging. One of the facts that you did not hear from Mr. Davis is that there is a bloody sock found 75 yards down an alleyway that has these boys' blood on it. And that somehow this doting mother turned psychotic killer went and dipped just ever so slightly an amount of her children's blood in that sock and then ran 75 yards down the alleyway and planted it while her husband is asleep upstairs. And the children have been stabbed and are dying in the living room. The state, what happened at six o'clock or by six o'clock? And I submit the evidence is going to show you earlier than that. By 6 a.m. on June the 6th, the Rowlett Police Department had decided that Darley Routier was guilty and they never, ever blinked from that. They never turned back. They never looked any other direction. They developed tunnel vision. And the only thing they could take, maybe it's more like a rifle scope, that they had focused the crosshairs on Darley Routier and they were never going to take them off of her. Now, I don't quarrel with the police officers going out and doing a good job and finding a suspect and focusing on that suspect. But I do quarrel when they only focused on that suspect. Mr. Greg Davis then speaks up and says, I'm sorry, I have got to object to this as being argument. It's not what the evidence is going to show. The court then says sustained. Mr. Mosty says it is judge. The court again says sustained. Mr. Mosty then continues. I'll tell you exactly what I'm talking about. There is a there's a description given that night by a neighbor of a black car that is at the scene at the time of the screams and by the time the sirens start going off is gone. That car is gone. And there will be no indication in the evidence that the Rowlett Police Department ever did anything to find that car. And that black car is a mystery to this day. By 6 a.m., the Rowlett Police Department had focused on Darley Routier, and that was it. All of the investigation, the evidence that you'll see from then on talks about, focuses on Darley Routier. And one of the things that you will see as they have pointed that rifle scope at Darley is that the state's evidence and the state's theory has changed and it changes. The state's case that Mr. Davis has described and will present is not what the evidence will show they were focusing on back in June because the June investigation has fallen apart. And let me just go through a few of them because I won't be able to remember them all. This business, and some of these Mr. Davis didn't mention, the mulch. He said one of the reasons they knew Darley was guilty was because the mulch outside of this window had been undisturbed. Well, the evidence will show you, in fact, there is no mulch outside of this window. The mulch is over there. So, of course, it wasn't disturbed. The evidence the state relied upon in June, this is in June, was that, for instance, there's no blood from the assailant, from the true murderer, that goes out the kitchen and through the garage as they decide there should have been. Well, the state's own evidence, the state's own witnesses will testify that they would not expect this assailant, this murderer who was still on the streets to have much blood on him. So the fact that he didn't leave a blood trail through the garage means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. The state says that she didn't try to help her children. You will see that that's false. And one of the things that's very interesting that you will see this officer Waddell who came in and he's the one who's going to say, I came to the scene. This is a trained police officer, trained in first aid. Quote, I came to the scene and I told her to help her child, but she didn't. 
and were going to ask him, quote, Officer Waddell, while you were there, why didn't you go help the child? He's criticizing the mother who has had her children butchered and he doesn't go and help the children. But that's somehow evidence of Darley's guilt. There's some of these things that are fairly incredible. One of them is that the officer says that one of the reasons he knows that Darley is guilty very early on is that there's no high velocity blood in the kitchen. High velocity refers to the, and you will hear some of this, how fast the blood is moving when it hits an object. And he says he knows Darley's guilty because there's no high velocity blood in the kitchen. Ladies and gentlemen, you will not find any person who testifies in this case who will say that there should have been high velocity blood in the kitchen. They will say there would never have been high velocity blood in the kitchen because high velocity blood relates to gunshots. And everybody knows there weren't any gunshots that went off in this house. So this high velocity blood, which they know proves Darley is guilty, is nothing. It means nothing. It is nothing. One of the kingpins of the state's case came in. That in this window, which is cut, and you've got to remember, ladies and gentlemen, when you see this, that this window is maybe this high off the ground. It's not as high as my boots. I could step over it like that. But this window that was cut didn't have any dust disturbed on the windowsill. Ladies and gentlemen, you will see it. And if someone is down and they step like that, they can step over that windowsill. It's right down on the ground. So the fact that dust is undisturbed means nothing. But they have more than that. They have a hair in the window. And as you climb through, the state's theory being that she climbed through and a piece of hair was pulled and it was tested and it was shown to be pulled out of someone's hair and it was blonde and it was bleached. And the state concluded that it belonged to Darley Routier. The state's witness testified previously that the hair was consistent with Darley Routier. Well, that was a great theory back in June. However, now when the hair is tested by DNA and you will hear this evidence, that hair belonged to a Rowlett police officer. So it's a blonde hair that proves Darley is guilty in June. And it's a blonde hair that means nothing now. But that's the change of the theory. And the state's theory has evolved like that. It has changed over and over. It's gone so far that after the evidence will show you that even after you were selected on this jury, the state has continued to go back, continue to go back to try and find some tests, to try and find something, to try and pull up something to prove that Darlie Routier is guilty because she is the only person in their crosshairs and that these tests have been done up as late as last Friday continuing to do tests to keep the rifle scope pointed on Darley. And you will see through all of this that things have changed and the state's theory has changed. And the reason is that when the blonde hair falls through, then they've got to do something else. When something falls through, they have to move to something else. And you will see, we will bring you that pattern. And I don't think the evidence will ever show you. I think we told all of you this. But your job is not to solve the case because I don't think the evidence will tell you what really happened, that the evidence here will ever tell you what really happened at 5801 Eagle Drive. And that's a shame, but the evidence will leave those gaps in it. It will leave those holes in it. And we submit, we know that when you have heard it all, you will understand that this lady is an American mother, just like any other number of American mothers. She is not perfect. Nobody said she was. Nobody is ever going to say she was. 
but the description of becoming a psychotic killer will not be borne out in the evidence. It will show that she is an American mother just like any other mother. And when you have heard all of that, although you won't know what fully happened at 5801 Eagle, you will know that the evidence does not prove that Darley Routier committed this crime. Thank you. And then the court says, all right, thank you, Mr. Mosty. The first up to testify for the prosecution is Dr. Joni McLean, and she is the medical examiner with Dallas County who performed the autopsy on Devin. Mr. Greg Davis starts off by saying, will you please tell us your full name? Joni McLean, are you a medical doctor? Yes. How are you employed? I'm a medical examiner with Dallas County. How long have you been a medical examiner with Dallas County? Since June of 1992. Can you tell us a little bit about your educational and professional background? I graduated from the University of Oklahoma School of Medicine in 1983 with a Doctor of Medicine degree. After that, I did a four-year residency in anatomic and clinical pathology at the Oklahoma Teaching Hospital. After that, I spent a fellowship year at Indiana University in forensic pathology. And then after that, I was in the military for four years at the Office of the Armed Forces Medical Examiner in Washington, D.C. Then I joined the office in Dallas. Okay. You mentioned, you had mentioned forensic pathology. Can you tell us what that is? Well, forensic pathology is involved with determining the cause of death, why someone died, as well as the manner of death. And we do that in instances where people die under unusual, unknown, or violent circumstances. In order to come to the cause and manner of death, we perform autopsies. Approximately how many autopsies have you performed personally? over 1,500. Let me ask you, if you had an occasion to perform an autopsy on an individual that was identified to you as Devin Routier? Yes. And when an autopsy is performed, Dr. McLean, it comes there to the Dallas County ME's office. Is it assigned a case number? Yes, it is. Okay. Is that a case number that will be for that individual only? Yes. Now, do you also prepare an autopsy report, a written report of your findings? Yes. As part of the process, are photographs also taken either at or near the time of the autopsy? Yes, they are. Okay. Whereupon some exhibits were marked for identification. And Mr. Greg Davis asked the court, may I approach the witness, Your Honor? And they say, you may. Dr. McLean, let me show you what's been marked as state's exhibit number one and ask you to review the document and tell me whether or not it is a true and correct copy of the autopsy report that you prepared in this case concerning Devin Routier. Yes, it is. Okay. And Dr. McLean, if you will, if you'll take a look at state's exhibit number A and tell me whether or not that is a photograph that was taken at or near the time that you performed the autopsy on Devin Routier. Yes, it is. And does it also contain and show the same case number of 1811-96 as it appears on your autopsy report? Yes. Mr. Greg Davison says, Your Honor, at this time, we'll offer State's Exhibit Number 1. The autopsy will offer State's Exhibit A for record purposes only. Mr. Douglas Mulder says no objection. The court then says State's Exhibit 1 is admitted for all purposes. State's Exhibit A is admitted for 
record purposes only, not to be shown to the jury. Mr. Davis then continues his line of questioning. And doctor, do you have another copy of your autopsy report? Is that correct? Yes, I have the original. Can you tell us briefly how you performed this autopsy on Devin Routier? Okay, well, first the body is brought in and we take photographs of the body as we receive it. Then we remove any clothing. We save that for trace evidence. After any trace evidence is collected, we will clean the body and then take additional photographs of any injuries or diseases that we might find on the body. So after we document the outer portion of the body, then we will look at the inside of the body for any injuries or any disease processes. We document the injuries. We also remove fluids at that time for toxicology. Okay. Now, when this child came to you, what kind of clothing was he wearing? He was received in a body bag on a white sheet. He was wearing one Power Ranger pair of shorts, also a Power Ranger pillowcase and pillow were submitted with the body as well as one black and white bed cover. Can you tell us how much this child weighed? He weighed 46 pounds. And how tall was Devin? He was 46 inches. So he's a little under four feet tall. Is that right? Yes. And did he appear to be the stated age of six years? Yes. Now, as part of your autopsy, are you looking for external injuries and also further in the process for internal injuries? Yes. Okay. And can you tell the members of the jury the types of injuries that were noted during your autopsy of Devon? Yes. I noted on his body four separate sharp force injuries. And when I describe these, I'm just going to start in with number one. That doesn't mean that this was the first one inflicted. I am just using the numbers for record purposes for the report. So I'm going to start off with stab wound number one. There was a stab wound of the left upper chest that went into the left upper chest between the fourth and fifth ribs. This stab wound went through the left upper lobe of the lung, the pulmonary artery, the right lower lobe of the lung, and then penetrated into the right posterior chest, about 1 16th of an inch. Where it penetrated into the chest was between the posterior ribs 7 and 8. The stab wounds went front to back, left to right, and really no up or down deviation. And I estimated the depth of penetration as five inches. Also noted on this stab wound, there were a sharp and blunt angle. In addition, there was blood in both the chest cavities. Okay, now you had indicated that on one of the stab wounds, you noted a blunt and then a sharp edge. Is that correct? That's correct. And would that be consistent with this child having been stabbed with a single edged knife as opposed to a knife that has two sharp edges? Yes. Okay. Now you had indicated that you took or photographs were taken during this autopsy or near the time of the autopsy. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. May I approach again, your honor? You may. Uh, whereupon some items were marked for identification only. Mr. Greg Davison says, Mr. McLean or Dr. McLean, if we could look at the photographs that have been marked as States Exhibit 1-A through 1-F. Are these, in fact, true and accurate photographs of the body of Devin Routier that were taken there at or near the time of autopsy? Yes. 
Do they truly and accurately depict the injuries that you noted during your autopsy? Yes, they do. Okay, do you believe that they would be of an assistance to this jury in understanding your testimony about these injuries? Yes, I do. Your Honor, at this time, we'll offer States Exhibit 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D, 1E, and 1F. Mr. Mulder says no objection. Mr. Richard Mosty said, those are the individual photo numbers. Mr. Davis replies, yes. The court says States Exhibit 1-A, B, C, D, and E, and F are admitted. They may be published to the jury. Mr. Davis then says, okay, we'll try to position this. The court then says, well, if any one of the defense attorneys wishes to come and view this, feel free to do so. Can all members of the jury see this pretty well? And the jurors then say yes. The court then says, okay, thank you. Can you gentlemen at the end see this okay? The jurors then say yes. Mr. Greg Davison says, now doctor, if we could, if we could start with just the overall and you have a numbering system for the stab wounds, is that correct? That's correct. And States Exhibit A here, do we show stab wound one here? Yes. And then stab wound two lower to the chest. Is that correct? That is correct. Now, stab wounds, we also, well, let's start here with the stab wounds first. We have stab wound number one. Can you tell us, is States Exhibit 1D, is that a close-up of that stab wound? Yes, it is. The stab wound, again, was how, how deep was that wound, number one? The depth of penetration was five inches. A stab wound number two here to the lower portion of the chest, is that shown in States Exhibit 1-C? Yes. And the depth of that wound, please. That was two and a half inches, two and one half inches. Now, we see here in States, States Exhibit number 1-E, an injury to the child's left forearm area. What type of injury is that? That's an incised wound. An incised wound is longer on the skin's surface than it is deep. It's still a sharp force injury. More of a cutting motion as opposed to a stab motion? Yes. And finally, we're looking at a number four wound here on the back portion of the child's left leg. Is that shown in States Exhibit 1-F? Yes. What type of wound does States Exhibit 1-F show? That's a stab wound. Approximately how deep was that stab wound shown in 1-F? It was three-fourths of an inch. Okay, thank you, doctor. Have we, let me just ask you, doctor, have we, do we have a videotape that shows the injuries sustained by Devin Routier? Yes. Okay. And have you had an opportunity to view that videotape? Yes, I have. Let me show you what has been marked as States Exhibit 2. It shows to be a videotape of Devin Routier. Is this, in fact, the videotape that you viewed yesterday? Yes. And doctor, let me first ask you, does it truly and accurately depict the injuries sustained by Devin Routier, the stab wounds number one and two shown here on the photographs? Yes. Do you believe that this videotape would assist you in your testimony for this jury concerning these injuries? Yes. Do you also believe it would assist the jury in understanding the nature and the direction and the depth of those wounds also? Yes. Okay. Mr. Greg Davison says, Your Honor, at this time we'll offer States Exhibit Number Two. 
the court then says any objection and Mr. Mulder says it just applies to this particular one. Mr. Davis said, right, just to Devin, that is it. Mr. Mosty then says it doesn't have anything else on it. Mr. Greg Davis says, no, this is just to Devin. Court then says, all right. Mr. Mulder says, no objection. The court says, all right. States, States exhibit number two is admitted. The court then says, all right, you may proceed. Mr. Davis then says, uh, doctor, in this, while we're waiting, this video has no sound attached to it. Is that right? That's correct. So as we go through here, this will show stab wound number one first. Is that right? Yes. And then it will show us stab wound number two. Is that right? That's correct. So if you would, if you need to, if you'll just comment on each one of them as we're looking at this, since there's no audio attached to it. Okay. Okay. All right. Let me see if it will work for us here. Okay. This is a photograph showing stab wounds one and two. And this shows the wound track of stab wound number one through the body. Then a cross section of the body, you will see the track of the wounds. Okay. You can see that the track is five inches in depth. It goes through the lungs, pulmonary artery, lung, and into the posterior portion of the back. And then this demonstrates stab wounds number two, as well as incised wound number three to the arm. So it would have been, it would have shown that the injury to the left arm could have been caused as a portion of stab wound number two. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And here you can see the stab wound going two and one half inches into the liver. Let me ask you, what actually would have caused the death of Devin Routier? Stab wounds caused the death, correct? Yes, multiple sharp force injuries. Can you tell us how those stab wounds would have actually caused this child's death? Well, the mechanism of death would be that the child bled to death, bled out. All right, is this a situation where he would have died instantly? No, it's fairly rapid, probably within a few minutes. Okay, so we're talking perhaps five minutes to actually lose enough blood to actually die. Mr. Mulder then says, object to leading. Court then says, sustained, rephrase the question. Mr. Davis says, all right, do you have any idea and an approximation of how much time would have been necessary for this child to die? I would say probably, again, a few minutes. I can't give an actual number, but the low end of a few minutes. Okay, do you have an opinion as to whether or not this child would have been able to make a noise after receiving both of these stab wounds? It's possible, yes. Okay, and why do you believe it's possible that he could have? Because there's nothing that would have precluded that medically, you know, on why a child couldn't have made a noise. The stab wound itself would not have precluded that. Okay, now as part of the as part of the autopsy, did you take hair samples and blood samples from this child? Yes. Okay. And did you keep those or did you deliver them to someone? I submitted them to the criminal investigation laboratory at Swift's. Okay. You yourself, did you do any sort of blood analysis or hair analysis in this case concerning Devin Routier? No. Let me ask you also, did either one of these stab wounds actually penetrate, penetrate through any ribs? Yes. 
All right. Are a child's ribs different than an adult's ribs, such as mine? Yes, there's still a lot of cartilage. And in this case, the stab wound went through the cartilage. All right. Is cartilage going to be as hard as bone? No. Concerning the amount of strength necessary to penetrate through the cartilage here in Devon Routier, what's your opinion about that? Well, it's certainly, you know, less than bone. Okay, doctor, just looking at state's exhibit number 31A here. We looked at this yesterday, have we not? Yes, okay. There are two stab wounds depicted concerning Devon Routier. Are these essentially still images that were shown on the video that the jury just saw? Yes, they are. And do they truly and accurately depict the wounds sustained by Devin Routier? Yes. And again, do you believe it would assist the jury in understanding the nature of those wounds? Yes. Mr. Greg Davis then says, pass the witness. At which point is the cross-examination by Mr. Doug Mulder. And now, doctor, just a thing or two, you took very precise measurements of these wounds, did you? Yes, I measured them. Okay. And were you able to tell from your examination? You said it was a single-edged knife, in your opinion. Is that right? One of the wounds there was a blunt and a sharp angle. So that would be consistent with a single-edged knife. Are you telling us that perhaps one of the wounds was with a double-edged knife? I can't rule that out because I'm calling one an indeterminate angle. So it could be either sharp or blunt. I couldn't tell for sure because of the drying. Well, I noticed from the movie that you vouch for that the knife was depicted in a certain way. Is that right? That's correct. In the wound that you've identified as number one, and this is just your way of numbering them, is it not? That's correct. There's no way you can determine any order, is there? No. Okay. And as a matter of fact, the fourth one could have could be the second one and the first one could be the third and the second one could be the first. There's just absolutely no way to determine the order. Is there? No, there's not. Now, the one that you designated as number one, were you able to determine where the sharp edge was and where the blunt edge was? Yes, the sharp edge pointed towards the center of the chest and the blunt was towards the arm. Okay. So if I'm indicating with my finger, the I've indicated on wound one, the sharp edge, edge. Yes. Okay. And the blunt edge you say is up here. That's correct. And that would be indicative of a single edged weapon or knife. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Now, can you tell the width of this knife? Not accurately, no. Okay. Can you tell the length of the knife blade? I can just say how far it went into the body. I can't say how long the actual knife was. Why is that? Well, a knife could be a lot longer than, you know, what you see in the body. I can just say that the knife went in five inches. Okay. And of course, you can take a knife. And if you were to stick me, say, for example, in the stomach with a knife, you can make a penetration of, say, four inches, for example, with a knife, with the blade no more than three inches in length. Is that not correct? Yes, that's correct. Because the body would give some, would it not? That's correct. Okay. But you know that if you find a... So you can tell us that you can't determine the exact length of the knife blade. Is that right? That's correct. 
Okay, now the wound that you've marked or designated as your report as number two, did you examine that to see if you found a sharp edge and a blunt edge? Yes, I did. Okay, and were you able to distinguish a sharp edge and a blunt edge? I found a sharp edge down lower. I could distinguish a sharp edge on number two. A sharp edge was here? No, it's there. Okay. The portion of the wound above it, the opposite of where you were pointing, I call that indeterminate because I couldn't say if it was sharp or blunt. So we use the term indeterminate if you can't tell specifically. Okay, can you make any determination with respect to the wound that you've designated as three? No. Okay, how about with respect to the wound that you've designated as four? No. Okay. Can you even tell the jury with certainty that these wounds were made by the same instrument? I can't say with certainty. It's possible they were. It's possible they weren't. Okay, so it's an iffy type of situation. Well, I just can't say. Okay, now, did you, when you examined these wounds, did you notice anything unusual about the entrance wound? I don't know what your, they looked like stab wounds. Did you take a cross section of these wounds? I saved the chest plate, uh, at which point Mr. Toby Shook, who is part of the prosecution, said, turn the thing so I so they can see it. Mr. Mulder then says, y'all can't see this. And the court's like, if the jury ever can't see anything, please raise your hand and state so, please. Mr. Mulder then says, can you see what they're talking about? And the jury then says, yes. And then Mr. Mulder continues, sharp edge here, yes sharp edge here yes indeterminate here yes and blunt here yes okay have you been shown any knife or instrument that purportedly caused these injuries yes i have okay did you bring it with you no okay and how long ago did you see that i looked at it yesterday is that the first time that you've seen it yes okay you're telling me that you did the autopsy some seven months ago yes and the first time they showed you a weapon that they are contending caused these injuries was yesterday. Yes. Okay. Do you know when you say the chest plate, I'm assuming that you're talking about this area right here. Yes. And you preserved that. Yes, I did. Okay. And what was done with that? At the time of the autopsy, I saved the chest plate. I put it in a bag with formalin, which is a preservative. Okay, did you notice any markings or toolings or any irregularities that you noted around either wounds one or two? I did not examine that closely to look for the tool marks. We have other individuals in the laboratory that do those sorts of analysis. Do you know whether or not there were any tool markings around those entrance wounds? I believe there is a report, but I don't know all the details. I would have to look at the report on what they did find. I don't do that examination. Okay, how many stabbings have you seen in the course of your, I think you said 1500 autopsies? I'd say hundreds. I don't know specifically. Okay, can you give the jury an educated guess as to what might cause the tool markings around those entrance wounds? Well, just various characteristics of a knife itself. You know, a knife is a tool. So if there's something on the knife that makes a mark, it can do that on into the cartilage. The actual knife can make a mark. Into what? Cartilage. Okay. Is 
Was it the cartilage that was marked or was it the outside of the chest plate that was marked? The cartilage is what they look at to look for the marks. Okay, whereabouts on the cartilage would they look? They look at the cartilage and you really need to talk to the person that does that because I don't do that analysis. Okay, but you can't tell us what might cause these tool markings? Something from the knife. Okay, the knife is going to be relatively smooth on both sides, is it not? Well, we're talking about the cutting side of the knife. That's what we're talking about. You're talking about the sharp edge? Yes. On wound one? No, we're talking about wound two that went through the cartilage. Okay, wound two. It is the one that penetrated some two and a half inches. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Now, are you talking about the blade that went into the cartilage? Yes. The tip of the blade? Well, the sharp edge of the blade. Well, the blade is generally when a knife is sharpened all the way to the tip or most of the way to the tip. Is it not? Yes. Okay. And is that what you're talking about? What part are you talking about that might have marked the cartilage? The sharp edge of the knife or any portion of the knife. Well, of course, if the blade itself is what I'm trying to say. Pardon? The blade portion of the knife can make marks. Okay. This wound was only two and a half inches deep. Was it not? That's correct. Okay. So that we know that that a blade could not have penetrated that body more than two and a half inches. Could it? Well, that's as far as it went. Yes, it went two and a half inches. Okay. Doctor, can you give us any range as to how long that child would have lived once the damage to his chest area that you have testified to occurred? Again, I feel like I can't say a specific minute, but minutes is what I believe. Well, I know you can't say a minute and 24 seconds, right? But can you give us a range like, you know, not more than three minutes or not more than five minutes or not more than? Well, again, it would just be a rough guess, probably not more than five minutes. But again, this is a guess because I don't know specifically. All right. I understand. Now, could you tell whether or not there had been any attempts to resuscitate this child? I didn't see anything, but sometimes you don't see anything on resuscitation on resuscitation. I mean, what would you look for if you were to see if someone had given him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation or whether someone had performed CPR on him? Occasionally with CPR, you might see some bruises on the chest. Sometimes you don't. Okay, so that, again, that kind of depends on the situation. Yes. The fact that you don't see them or did you see them? I didn't see anything. No. Well, the fact that you didn't see them doesn't mean the CPR wasn't attempted does it? No, it doesn't. All right. Now, what would happen, doctor, if you were to attempt mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation with this child's open wounds? If you blew into that child's open wounds, I take it the lungs, at least the lung in the first wound, was penetrated. Yes. What would you expect? The child didn't have a shirt on? No. Okay. What would happen if you blew into that child's mouth? What would happen with respect to those injuries? I don't know what would have happened to the injuries. Would anything have come out of those injuries? Well, I don't know if it would, possibly. I don't know. Maybe some blood, maybe not. I don't know. Okay, but blood could have come out, could it not? It's possible. Okay, 
there will be a hemorrhage associated with those. You said cut the pulmonary artery, didn't you? Yes. Well, isn't that one of the two main arteries in the body? Yes, it is. I mean, it's one of the largest arteries that we have, isn't it? Yes. So you would expect, you said the child bled out. He in effect bled to death, did he not? Yes. So you would expect a lot of blood associated with that initial intrusion, would you not? Yes, I found in each chest cavity itself about 450 milliliters of blood. Well, then you can say with certainty, doctor, that if you blew into that child's mouth, blood is going to come out of these holes, isn't it? I don't know if blowing into it would do anything. Oh, you don't? No. Would you just say it's a possibility? I guess it's possible, blowing or moving the body. All right, doctor, was there any other clothing associated with the body other than the Power Rangers shorts? Well, what I received were the Power Ranger shorts, and then there was a Power Ranger pillowcase and a pillow that was submitted with the body. Also a black and white bed cover. So that's what I received with that body. And doctor, if you blew into the child's mouth in a mouth-to-mouth resuscitation effort, would air come out of those invasions? You don't know about that either? I don't know. I've never done that, so I don't know. You just deal with dead bodies, don't you? You don't deal with the live ones? That's correct. Mr. Mulder then says, I believe that's all. Thanks. And at which point, uh, Mr. Greg Davis then comes up for his redirect. And Dr. McLean, would you expect blood to be gushing out of a stab wound number one as that wound was being inflicted on this child? It could come out or it might just all be in the body too. Okay, what do you mean it might all just be in the body? That the blood seeping out of the lungs is collecting in a chest cavity and I have 450 milliliters of blood in each chest cavity. So it doesn't have to go out of the body, it could stay in the body. How about stab wound number two? Would you expect blood to spurt out of that wound as that wound was being inflicted on the child? No, not necessarily because it can just all be in the body. So I've got, you know, again, 450 milliliters of blood in the chest, both sides of the chest. Would you say that is a substantial amount of blood in the cavity? Yes. How much blood would this child have had in all? Probably about, I can give an estimate, around 1400 milliliters. And I got, so we're talking about a third of the blood then. And I've got about 900 altogether in the body because I had 450 in each chest. And then there was about 30 in the periocardial sac. So I collected 930 milliliters within the body. Okay, Mr. Mulder asked you about breastplates and impressions that you took. Do you know a person by the name of Robert Poole? Yes. Who is Robert Poole? He's a firearm and tool mark examiner at the Southwestern Institute of Forensic Sciences. Okay. And did I understand you to say that you don't do tool mark analysis, do you? No. Would that be something Mr. Poole would do? Yes. Okay. At this point, Mr. Greg Davison says, may I approach your honor? Of course, as you may. Mr. Davison says, Doctor, let me show you what's been marked as States Exhibit 67. Do you recognize that? Yes, I do. Okay. Is it the knife that you looked at yesterday? Yes. Okay, Doctor. Just looking at States Exhibit 67, 
Is this a single or is this a double-edged knife? That's a single-edged knife. All right. Do you know approximately how long the blade is on this knife? I didn't measure exactly that. It's either 8 or 10 inches. Okay. Now, on the cutting edge of this knife, on the single edge that's sharp, are there certain marks? Yes. Okay. What type of marks are on this knife? Very small serrations. Okay. Just small parallel lines that run pretty much the length of the cutting edge. Is that correct? That's correct. Doctor, looking at States Exhibit 67, can you tell us whether or not stab wound number one to Devin Routier could have been produced by States Exhibit 67? Yes. Anything at all that would have excluded States Exhibit 67 as having produced stab wound number one? No. Can you tell us whether or not States Exhibit 67 could have produced stab wound number two? Yes, it could have. Is there anything at all that would have excluded States Exhibit number 67 as having produced stab wound number two? No. Now on stab wound number two, did I understand you to say the sharp edge is downward? Is that correct? Yes. If you would, I would like for you to assume that this child, at the time that he received stab wound number two, had his left arm covering a portion of his lower chest, okay? Would it have been possible for this knife with the sharp edge down to have caused both stab wound number two and the incised wound that we see here on State's Exhibit 1E? Yes. Okay, looking finally at wound number four, is it possible that State's Exhibit number 67 could have produced stab wound number four? Yes. Is there anything at all that would have excluded States Exhibit 67 as having produced that stab wound? No. Okay. Mr. Greg Davison says, I'll pass the witness, Your Honor. Mr. Mulder then comes up and says, Now, Doctor, can you give the first... First of all, aren't you... You aren't saying that that's the weapon that caused those stab wounds, are you? No, I'm saying it's consistent with... Could be, is what you're saying. Yes. No question about that, is there? No, there's no question it could be. And you're not identifying that knife as the instrument that caused those injuries, are you? No. No question about that, is there? No, I can't say. Can you give us the maximum width of the knife that could have caused those injuries? And when I say width, I'm talking about this portion. And then he demonstrates on the knife. You really can't because there's a sharp edge. You really have to have a very long length on the body just by pulling a knife through. So in effect, what you're saying is that you could, you could take a relatively narrow knife and by pulling it down, of course, this isn't cutting even, but you can make a wide gash and he demonstrated on a piece of paper, a longer a long gash with a relatively narrow, with a knife less than half this width, right? Yes. Okay, can you tell us the, so you can't tell us the width of the knife, is that right? No, you can't say how long it, it is, just because, like you pointed out, you could pull it down. Can you tell us how long the blade would be? I can just tell you how deep it is in the body. Again, five inches on one, two and one half on the other. So I can't tell you how long the knife would have to be. Okay. Or how long it is. Okay. 
And there isn't any way that you know of estimating that, I guess. No? Okay. Can you tell us whether or not the assuming that it was a knife, and we're going to have to assume that it was a knife, it could be other sharp instruments that could have caused this, right? I feel like it is a knife. Okay. Could you tell whether or not the knife had a serrated blade or a plain blade? I cannot tell. You can't tell? No. You've said that this knife, in fact, has a serrated blade. That's correct. Okay. Now, did you x-ray the body? Yes. Okay. And did you find this was a very healthy young man? Was he not? Yes. Good hygiene? Yes. I mean, a well taken care of young man, wasn't he? Yes. Okay. Teeth were good. Yes. Good dental hygiene. Yes. You examined those, didn't you? Yes. Matter of fact, you looked to see if there was any evidence of child abuse, didn't you? Yes. Any bones that perhaps were broken and had healed, you looked for that, didn't you? That's correct. There were none. Were none. So this child was in a very fit condition. Was he not? Yes. Well nourished? Yes. Apparently well taken care of, didn't he? Yes. And no evidence of any child abuse in his history? No. Okay, thanks. The court then says, that's it. Are you through, Mr. Mulder? Mr. Mulder then says, I am for right now, judge. All right, can I see both sides a minute? Mr. Mulder then says, yes. And the court says, you have no more witness, no more questions for this witness. Mr. Mulder says, no, I passed the witness, judge. Um, at this point, a short discussion is held off of the record at the side of the bench and just outside the hearing of the jury, after which time the proceedings were resumed on the record. So the court then says, okay, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you may step down, ma'am. Thank you very much for coming. This is our first day and we are running a little late, but nonetheless, I'm going to recess you for lunch now until 1.30. We have some matters to take up here. And since I am new to Kerrville, I think that will give you enough time to eat. I don't want to upset anybody here. I think you can get in before the lunch crowds occur. And then goes on to say, so just the following instructions. Do not talk to anybody about this case. If somebody tries to talk to you about the case, tell the bailiff who happens to be with you at the time. You can make casual comments to the people you see in the courtroom, but we're very sociable. Nobody is going to talk to you about this case until it's all over. When the case is over, you may talk or not talk as you see fit, but don't discuss it with anybody. Now, don't discuss it amongst yourselves, even when you get back in the jury room because it's not over yet. And finally, don't do any investigations on your own. I know this is on a change of venue, so Rowlett's quite a ways away. I don't think anybody will be flying up there or driving up there over the weekend to see it. Do no investigation on your own. Don't read any law books or anything like that. You have received a copy of the juror instructions. Basically, that's what it is. So we'll see everybody back here at 1.30. Come straight back to the jury room, please. And that will be fine. We'll see everybody here at 1.30. Wear the juror badge at all times. Thank you very much. When they all come back from lunch, the court then says, all right, is everybody ready to bring the jury back in? Mr. Davis says, the state is ready, judge. Mr. Mulder says, yes, sir, the defense is ready. The court then says, all right, bring the jury in, please. They come into the courtroom and the court then says, all right, please come to order. Let the record reflect that we're resuming the Darley Routier matter. Let the record reflect that all parties of the trial are present and the jury is seated. At which point they go ahead and call the next witness, 
which will be Dr. Janice Townsend Parchman, who is the also the medical examiner with Dallas County who performed the autopsy on Damon. Uh, the Joni, the one that we just heard from, is the one who performed the autopsy on Devin, the older child. Damon is the younger child for which Darley is actually on trial for murdering. And with that, because this has run so long, I'm going to pause it here and then we will pick up next time with the testimony of Dr. Janice Townsend Parchman. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. Again, if you enjoyed this podcast and want to subscribe, please do so through your favorite podcast provider or giving it a like or a comment on YouTube there as well. Uh, You can also become a supporter with Patreon at patreon.com forward slash beachhouse34 or there's a link uh, on my Instagram at beachhouse34podcast. So until next time, thank you, thank you, thank you. We will speak soon.